Hello, and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Bremer. Dr. Bremer is a senior researcher at Bergen University in Norway, based in the Center for the Study of the Sciences and Humanities, which I think covers all the bases. He studies coastal governance in the context of climate change and especially how people and policy adapt to these changes. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Toby. You live in one of my favourite places in the world. How is beautiful Bergen these days? It's uh, not very summery. Uh, And me, who's interested in seasons and seasonal adaptation, I feel like I'm really having to adapt to 11 to 13, 14 degrees. We're not getting any of those heat waves that this summer is supposed to be bringing. So that hasn't reached us yet. We're still in something like a like a late winter. Well, I mean, be careful what you wish for. I think mainland Europe is getting a series of heat waves this summer. And to be honest, when we get our 36 degree days with no air conditioning, I would pay pretty much anything to be teleported to a city that's 11 to 13 degrees and a bit rainy. Yeah, but grumbling aside, I guess Bergen is a good place to study coastal adaptation. It is, it is. We're on a rough west coast of of Norway. We get all the westerly weather. Bergen's often called the wettest place in Europe. So we get a lot of rain. So, you know, we shouldn't be too unaccustomed to kind of wet, drizzly, grey stuff. We get a lot of weather. We've got a lot of topography, fjords and kind of low mountains. So this makes for some kind of pretty soggy, grey weather and also very changeable weather, very kind of four seasons in one day kind of stuff. So it makes it very fun for someone like me, a social scientist who's interested in studying how people cope with seasonal variation, climate variability, climate change. Yeah, I can imagine. I also quite like the description, a lot of topography. That's (laughs) very much a geographer's way of describing what is, come on, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Anyway, are these two independent interests of yours, like coastal governance and the science policy interface, or did one lead to the other? For for me, my my concern has always been with science policy and science for policy, rather, so that how we mobilise science, but also other knowledge systems for decision making. And it began a long time ago with me working as a planner, actually, in local government in New Zealand. And I worked for a number of years in local government and and kind of felt like we were cobbling together uh, reports and decisions with quite a sparse scattering of science. And we kind of filled in the gaps with a lot of common sense or legalese. And, and the final report looked very robust. It looked like it was founded on some very solid science. But for those of us that wrote it, and gosh, you know, I was just fresh out of university in my early 20s, it felt like it was on some quite wobbly legs. And so eventually that's kind of what took me back to to research and and to doing a PhD and and focusing on what, how is science, but also local knowledge, traditional knowledges, um, craft knowledges, tacit knowledges, all sorts of kind of more informal knowledge systems. How are they brought to bear in these uh, reports, these decisions, these policies that we put together in local government for coastal governance? And, And I guess since 2014, the coastal stuff is always an interest to me, but I've kind of focused more and more on climate adaptation, not necessarily on the coast, but in in other uh, spots as well. And uh, more recently, the last three, four years, I've been really interested in seasons and our ideas about the seasons, our kind of seasonal calendars, our cultural frameworks of seasons, and how these are 
taken for granted and affecting a lot of our decisions about how we adapt, what we do at different times of the year uh, without us really reflecting on it. So we often think about the formal science, the, the seasonal forecasts, the weather forecasts and, and these kind of forms of knowledge. But there's a lot going on in the back of our minds, I think, that are, is shaping what we do and how we adapt to yeah, this cold, soggy summer that we have now and how I can't paint the fence. <laughs> Okay, let me ask you something just to clear up a potential uh, terminological confusion which tripped me up before when I was speaking with another researcher uh, who's also interested in this question of alternative kinds and sources of knowledge. We had a little bit of debate then about whether, terminologically speaking, we should count other sources of knowledge also as science. I mean, I don't mean that in like a pejorative way, like are they inferior to science or not. I just mean, do we use the word science to include other forms of knowledge beyond, you know, the, the formal experimental method or not? When, when I talk about it, I do. At least my, all of my work has been about how we kind of marshal science, but alongside and integrated with and complementary to um, other ways of knowing, if you like. Um, of course, the, the boundary of science is very fuzzy. There's a long debate about where do we draw the boundary of science and say this is where science stops and this is where other knowledges uh, start. You know, a lot of indigenous knowledge systems have been built on centuries of trial and error and careful observation, which in many, many ways conforms to some of this kind of rigorous systematic observations, which we would consider scientific. So I think it can get quite fuzzy where the boundary is between these knowledge systems. But uh, my, my focus has always been about different approaches, whether that's transdisciplinary research, post-normal science, mode two science, deliberative democracy, sustainability science, and the others, civic science, co-production. So with all these kind of huge ecosystem of approaches, which is all about how we can kind of mobilize knowledge for decision-making in a particular decision-making setting, recognizing that a big part of that will be science, but there are other types of or other ways of knowing that have quality for decision making. And I think that's always been my focus is through a post-normal science lens, for example, what knowledge has quality for the decision we need to take right now. And that can be science, but it might not have to be. Very good. So when we discussed uh, making this recording, what we briefly suggested we might talk about is the notion of push and pull in science advice, which I think is also the same as what's often called supply and demand, the supply versus demand question. Um, but perhaps you can correct me there. Is that the same thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I also think about it in terms of supply and demand as well. And most of my focus in the last few years has been, for example, on uh, climate services uh, or uh, seasonal forecasts, uh, these kind of knowledge products uh, where there's this expectation that we can tailor climate projections, climate for seasonal forecasts, etc., to the particular needs of particular user groups or particular sectors of society that have that are facing particular climate risks, for example. There is this ongoing debate around, okay, so what is steering this field of climate services, for example? Is it something like... Uh, the supply of what is available, what we have? Is it the scientific community saying, this is what we're able to produce? We are now able to produce increasingly accurate or, or seasonal forecasts with increasing amounts of skill over this time scale. 
And we can well imagine that this will be something of, of great importance and of great use to certain people in the world. It's uh, been referred to as a loading dock model, for example, where you kind of take out everything you have <laughs> from your scientific lab and you dump it outside the door and you go free to a good home and let people kind of come and take it and, and, and draw on it. There's this expectation that people, will, yeah, this is going to be great stuff. People are really going to see the value in this. My colleague, uh, Jerome Vandersweet, often talks about the guy looking for his keys. He's lost his keys on a dark street at night and he looks for the keys under the kind of the halo of light cast by the street lamp. I mean, he could have lost the keys anywhere along this dark street, but he looks where he can see the keys. He can't see them in the dark. So he looks into this halo of light and that's where he looks for his keys. It's this idea of we provide what we have. We emphasize on the science that we have and, and can provide rather than what is needed. And that's then the kind of jumping to the, the demand side or the, the pull side, if you like, which is based more on which scientific advice is needed at the moment. Uh, what scientific advice do people consider to be of of worth, of value, of quality for decision-making uh, for a particular issue. That's how I've kind of thought about this push-pull or supply and uh, demand terminology. But it, I think it's obviously a kind of quite a simplistic dichotomy, if you like, of talking about the science we have on the one hand and the science people need on the other hand. But I think it's a, it's a good heuristic for how we can think about this mobilization of science into policy or into decision-making, into action. And I guess for me, it's never a clean translation of science into decision-making or action, that there's so many different uh, filters in between this, you know, the production of, of a scientific fact or piece of information and its use within a particular social context. And, and this is, I guess, what I'm most interested in when we talk about supply and demand push and pull, is all of these kind of systems, infrastructures, institutions, expectations that filter all the, this translation of information. Got it. I feel like there is uh, there's probably an overly simplistic view of this in which uh, push is just bad and pull is good, or at least better, you know, from the point of view of trying to promote the influence of science on policy from the point of view of the scientific community. We want pull because that means the policymaker comes to us with their needs and we can then meet them. Is it uh, as simple as that? Um, no, no. And I, and I think this is this kind of complex set of, <laughs> of mediating factors that is between this kind of this push and pull. So I do see that this political project to promote science advice is not an innocent project, that it is based on particular values and goals. For example, if I look at this climate services field, for example, of trying to tailor climate information to different users, there has been this notion, quite a neoliberal notion, if you like, that we can privatize what has previously been uh, quite public uh, weather information and tailor it to particular products. And we can create this huge European market where there's going to be you know, lots of customers out there who are going to be queuing up for, for climate information that is tailored to their particular needs. It's based on a particular imagination of social order and infrastructure and institutions and systems, this idea of this marketplace for climate information and, and how that marketplace is going to be organized. So I think when we start talking about the push aspect, or there are these expectations, there are these imaginaries of how climate information or, or any scientific information for that matter 
ought to be made available and mobilized for for public good or for for society that also i think it's kind of it's based on some pretty persistent systematic representations or models of how that information ought to be channeled uh, or is channeled these kind of linear models again within climate services there's this idea of a value chain uh, where Climate information is generated uh, at an international scale, for example, by meteorological organizations in, in Europe, for example, and then channeled via uh, a chain of organizations down to users in, for example, drought-stricken East Africa. So you've got these kind of very uh, linear models of science being channeled uh, along a chain of organizations to a user. Likewise, a kind of a, a demarcation model where you've got the kind of science advice mechanism model and, and a lot is done to demarcate the, the politics from the science. And, and with good reason, there's clear rationale behind that. But I, I, I sometimes question to what extent can we kind of block off scientific experts, almost like, you know, jury members in a hotel somewhere and kind of keep them separate from the politics and the, the values that, that circle around particular issues. And of course, this kind of deficit model, and this is what I'm particularly interested, I guess, when we start talking about other ways of knowing, is this idea that science is communicated into a vacuum, that, uh, that we're all kind of empty heads waiting to be filled up with some new scientific knowledge that we'll then be able to act on. And I guess my key interest in a lot of my work has been around, yeah, well, actually, people already have a lot of un different understandings of how the world works, with you know, different types of knowledge, different cultural frameworks, different worldviews, and that uh, that science isn't just filling up this vacuum, that it's actually mediated by these other knowledges and cultures and social structures. So it has to actually be integrated into those existing understandings. Okay. In listening to you, sometimes it sounds like you're describing a failure of communication, but, but with good intention. So, you know, the scientist really wants to help, but their advice doesn't land because they don't take into account where the audience is coming from or what their worldview is and so on. You know, they don't integrate it into the audience's existing understandings, as you, as you put it just then. And then other times, it sounds a bit more like you're describing, uh, for want of a better term, well, Maybe to call it a sinister project is going too far, but at least a slightly um, cynical situation where the scientist is like a marketing person trying to figure out what their customer wants so they can sell to that. Yeah. Again, if I think of the, the, the climate services field, because I think this is quite a nice field where this, this ongoing kind of debate around uh, supply-demand uh, push-pull is, is going on. I, I would argue that there's been a huge emphasis on trying to elicit what climate information people actually need so to you know to, to focus on the pool side to so exactly what you were saying toby this idea that pool is inherently good we ought to find out what information people really need and target it that way but on the one hand you've got this kind of this rhetoric and all projects focusing on producing climate services now will have co-production as, as a as a starting point for this of so finding out what people need actually sitting down together and, and co-producing a, a piece of scientific work with them where they co-define the problem co-design it so maybe even carry out the research together and, and communicate it together uh, and yet in practice 
there's still these very strong structures in place, these institutions and organizations that mediate science advice are still built on a model, I would argue, uh, which is based on, on a supply model. We have the science, we have the technology, and uh, let's get it out there. This is the persistent rationale, even though there's been a large number of different initiatives taken over the past yeah, 10 plus years to try and focus more on the pool, on the demand, going to the users and, and kind of seeing, you know, finding out what kind of information they need and actually having them have a role in designing the research. So I, I think there is a disconnect there. And I do think that the supply model persists. And of course, it is set up based on the kind of highly disciplinary setup of the academy. The academies as organizations, I mean, you know, different national academies and so on, or the academy used as a, as a term to kind of refer to, to science in general. There is this kind of move, which is tending to fragmentation rather than integration, that disciplines are not consolidating, but rather within the same discipline, you know, within the space of a few decades, these disciplines have kind of fragmented even further so that within the field of political science, for example, you have very different people doing completely different work, which wouldn't see the, the quality or the relevance of each other's work. Um, so you've got this kind of fragmentation, yeah, a tendency to marginalize uncertainties, so to focus on what we know rather than on what we don't know. And I would argue, and for me, who's interested in interdisciplinary work and transdisciplinary work and, and post-normal science and so on, there remain really strong uh, structures that disincentivize working in that kind of mode. Yeah, I mean, I don't suppose you'd find many people uh, who think about these things who would defend the model you're describing, the fragmentation and the, the kind of super specialization and so on. I do suspect, though, that it's it's... Well, I mean, saying inevitable suggests we can't do anything about it, which I don't suppose is true. But, you know, maybe this is just a kind of default way things go as we make progress in science. Thinking back a thousand, two thousand years, we just had philosophy, the study of all things. And then as we get more knowledge, we get deeper into things. We have to therefore specialize and divide up the labor. Eventually, nobody can just be a natural scientist like in the 17th century. That's too broad a topic now. and There's too much involved. So we need biologists and chemists and so on. And so as time goes by, you get more and more fragmented. And again, not to say that it's inevitable and we have to throw up our hands in the air and just put up with it, but it can be a kind of automatic consequence of progress that's to an extent unavoidable. Sure. I mean, this is the nature of science at the moment. So I, I guess I think that once we start to deal with science advice and then we're tailoring that to particular societal challenges, whether that be climate change or COVID or whatever it might be, that then that highly disciplinary and, and, and kind of highly focused and fragmented scientific beast, you know, that's not necessarily the mode which is going to work for supporting decision making and action. It's becoming quite widely agreed now that for those kind of issues, the more interdisciplinary and the more holistic and comprehensive we can make our perspective on a particular issue, the better off we are for making kind of well-rounded decisions. And there was, there was some, there has been discussion in various kind of articles around the pandemic, for example, which initially was quite focused on epidemiology and a quite a, quite a narrow band of disciplines because 
we had to make urgent decisions quickly. And these were the disciplines which deal most often with that topic. But as the pandemic dragged on, we started to see that this was quite a complex issue and that it brought in all sorts of different societal changes and, and changes in relationships and, and psychological changes as people were stuck at home. Then suddenly we saw that this issue couldn't be dealt with by a narrow band of kind of two or three disciplines alone, that actually we were going to need to bring in a whole host of different disciplines and, and find a way in which we can kind of bring together these different disciplinary perspectives and form a kind of more holistic body of knowledge on which we can make decisions, which has quality for, for making decisions. So I don't think we have to restructure science. This is the nature of science that it's fragmented and it's becoming more specialized. But I think that when we come to science advice, that means working in a different mode. And it means kind of abandoning some of our uh, highly disciplinary tendencies and trying to see how we can work in a more into or transdisciplinary way. Good. So then my next question is, okay, what are your ideas for doing that? Yeah. So I've been kind of working in a number of different modes. A lot of what I began working from was from a post-normal science perspective. I mean, that's one perspective, right? But uh, but that boils down to ideas of quality. So when the uncertainties are so high and we kind of can't claim that we, we have the, the truth of the matter, then this kind of legitimates a whole bunch of different alternative knowledge systems or ways of knowing. And, and no one can kind of claim that they... Uh, have access to the truth. So then rather the best thing that we can hope to do is to kind of strive to have some information, some knowledge that is uh, of quality, that has high quality for helping us make a decision for something at the moment. So facing climate change and, and needing to kind of tailor climate information for that, you know, we don't know exactly, we can't predict with absolute precision what uh, the, the next three months will look like if we're talking about a seasonal forecast, for example, but we can provide certain indications which might be enough that uh, a particular decision maker, whether it be a farmer, whether it be a, someone in charge of municipal planning or the drainage system in a city, they can say, okay, it looks like this is going to be a particularly wet summer and they can make certain arrangements. So there's indications that it might well be a wetter summer than normal. And so it might be enough that we give them a cue without having to provide hyper-precise information, but some kind of cues that will help them think about uh, how they might act over the next uh, three months, if we're talking about a seasonal forecast, for example. So we don't have to be able to talk in terms of high precision, perfect, full knowledge of a situation in order for information to be useful and, and be able to be acted on. It can be of high quality, even if it's quite vague, as long as it kind of can give a, a signal that can be acted on. So quality is one way I think that we can kind of bring together different knowledge systems. That's important too, because science does have a particular rigor and uh, it's systematic and it's critical and, you know, that is why it has, has emerged as being the most valued source of information and evidence when we need to make decisions around a pandemic, around climate change or what have you. And then, you know, people might be kind of quick to say, you know, things like local knowledge or traditional knowledge, you know, it's all a bit wishy-washy, it doesn't have the same rigor and so on. And, and it, it's important to not be too romantic about other ways of knowing. That's true that, uh, for example, we were working in Bangladesh and there were some proverbs that they used there to predict the seasons. So they would say, oh, if the mango buds are, are really densely clustered in spring, then it kind of might imply that it's going to be a wet summer. And, and so we, we ran a citizen science initiative there, and they tested that proverb. 
Okay, they only tested it over two or three years, so that's not necessarily a huge debunking, but it didn't seem to really hold in that particular place where we were over those particular three years. So this is something also that we're trying to do with other types of knowledge holders too, is, is have them critically revisit the quality of some of their old, you know, long-held proverbs and, and local knowledges and traditional ways of knowing as well. I mean, to not be, as I say, romantic about these kinds of things. So I think coming back to quality and having quality as a benchmark can be quite a nice way of being able to put different ways of knowing alongside each other and, and kind of weigh them up in decision-making rather than something like some kind of scientific measure of truth, because then certain knowledges, local knowledges and things just won't conform to that because they're a different way of knowing. But I mean, other than that, so that's a kind of more kind of philosophically like zooming out and saying, by what criteria can we integrate different knowledges? And I think quality might be one, but I've been kind of working in very different ways of doing that. I mean, I've, we've been running workshops or doing citizen science uh, initiatives like I was talking about in Bangladesh, but also here in Bergen. We've been trying to kind of elicit some of those ways of knowing that are being drawn on by people, but not reflexively that are taken for granted. So I was talking about seasonal calendars before, um, and we've been doing that through things like narrative interviews, participant observations, so putting ourselves amongst particular groups of people and kind of observing the way that they act according to the seasons, talk about the seasons, uh, think about the seasons when they're communicating that to us. And this has been, has been really rewarding in, a, in a, a different take on knowledge co-production in the sense that, for example, every Friday I, uh, I work as, a, as an assistant gardener at the botanical gardens and I'm studying the seasonal rhythms in the gardens. And a big part of this is having these ongoing reflexive conversations with people in the garden. So asking them, why do you do this now? And, and have you always done this at this time? Or has this, you know, have, have these practices changed? Oh, I see that technologies have changed. As they've changed, has that changed the order in which you do things? Oh, I also see that policies are, you know, changing the way we do things in the garden. So, you know, moving to electric tools or moving away from fertilizers and things like this. And how is that changing the rhythm of work uh, within the gardens? And, and what about how do the gardener's rhythm, seasonal rhythms differ from those of the botanists, for example? So in having these reflexive conversations, we're rebuilding and, and people, this is really encouraging when people we talk to, I talk to in the garden say, hey, well, I was thinking about what we talked about a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago. And I'm thinking about how I frame the seasons. And yeah, I think that has changed. So for me, this having these kind of reflexive conversations is also a manner in which we can produce understandings or reflect on and produce understandings of a, of a highly complex and uncertain and changing situation like changes in seasons with climate change and other changes. So, okay, that's that's really interesting. I just want to make sure I understand the, the basic thought that lies behind what you're saying, as it were. So take this example of talking to people uh, and listening to how they think about the seasons and frame the way they work. If I understand what you're saying, it's not just supposed to be gathering interesting data about how people think as a kind of uh, sociological, I suppose actually more like anthropological study that's interesting as a descriptive piece of work. The idea is instead that by by doing that work, you can actually extract useful 
data or gain a new kind of understanding which is good in itself, which can improve the way we do things going forward, which you which you wouldn't have kind of stumbled across if you were just doing pure formal science. Exactly. So this is kind of this is what it boils down to that that I'm trying to change my mode of doing scientific research. So it's not purely descriptive, but it also engages in a very kind of normative way with where people can kind of think how ought we live by the seasons or work by the seasons here in the gardens. Has this changed? Yes, this has changed with policy, with technology, with changes in practices, uh, with changes in climate, migration and immigration and globalization. And all of these different factors are changing what seasons mean within that garden. And I'm trying to not just describe that and sit in the corner and see that, but to actually engage people in ongoing discussions about those changes and what that means for them and their work and how they understand and work by the seasons with the intention that they may also change their practices, fit them better to the changing seasonal conditions, that they're not uh, stuck in a pattern of doing certain practices at certain times, even though maybe uh, the plants are flowering earlier than they did before, or uh, the pollinators are coming at a different time, or the technologies are no longer fitted to that. And maybe an electric chainsaw doesn't work in minus 14 degrees in February uh, when you used to go out and do all your chainsawing. So as policy technologies change, they change our seasonal rhythms. And I want people to reflect on that and potentially change that. And I, and I, I think that also I'm using the, the example of a gardens, but I think that would also work in other decision-making settings and, and also why not in policy-making settings where we could focus on how we have these this kind of reflexive learning between scientists and policymakers, decision makers, where they're kind of continuously questioning, why is the science like this? Why have you focused on this phenomena and not on these other phenomena? And, and likewise, the scientists can also kind of be having these same kind of reflexive conversations with policymakers about, you know, what was the rationale behind making these decisions? So that can be a fruitful mode of channeling science to decision making, or rather, I should say, basing decisions on science and other knowledge systems and through this kind of reflexive mode. Hmm. I suppose it's true that just, well, either automatically or perhaps as a kind of instinct to simplify and model things, I do tend to think of it as a linear process. I mean, whichever direction the flow of information goes, and it can go both directions, but it's still along a line. Science produces information and then decision makers consume it. And of course, you can have information about what's needed and what's wanted. And you can have engagement between the two ends of the line in, in, in defining what's valuable. So it's not all a one-way flow. But even then, I still think of it going up and down that line and the two ends of the line not occupying the same space. They don't do the same stuff. And then what you're describing is a much more general, holistic way of interacting Uh where decision makers and knowledge producers are like jointly finding a way to make sense of what they're talking about. It's so it's it's true co-production. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's that's really a nice way of, of saying it. And I think I was talking earlier about this value chain of channeling climate services, climate information from this global level down to this notional farmer standing in Kenya somewhere. But there are alternative models and they have they are creating, for example, climate outlook fora. Uh, for regions or at the national level or at local level where they try and actually pull together certain people from along that chain to have these discussions 
under one roof, if you like, so that, you know, the farmer can say, that's all very good, but the current understandings I have of seasons and my current understandings, my other knowledge systems I already have, this science somehow needs to integrate with those. When we think of a line, it somehow puts into the background all of the other understandings that are, like I say, that are in place, that kind of filter and that mediate between this supply and demand, the push and the pull. As soon as we start talking about seasonal forecasts, for example, wow, so we have scientific information that is increasingly skillful and accurate. Um, then we have to think, yeah, but how is that, is that seasonal forecast integrated into existing cultural understandings, cultural frameworks of seasons, and all the other knowledges and ways of knowing and, and ways of acting around that? So I can use the example, most climate science now is organized into four seasons. They'll make seasonal forecast predictions based on a summer, winter, autumn, spring kind of framework. But we well know many regions of the world don't have four seasons. You know, they might have two, they might have six or eight or more, you know. And so if we provide a spring forecast in places of East Africa that, you know, that forecast kind of organized into a particular three Gregorian months might not hold a lot of meaning for farmers in that area who say, but this is not a period for us. <laughs> like this, this three month period does not correspond to how we think about seasons and how then can I match up this forecast into my other kind of local knowledge of different signs of, oh, things are starting to bud now or you know, these particular birds, these migrational birds are, are coming overhead now. So how am I supposed to match that up when they seem to not match at all? So, so I think the cultural frame or worldview has a lot as to whether that knowledge will kind of, or that science or that, that science, that seasonal forecast, for example, will take hold or find purchase within a particular group of farmers or planners or managers of dams or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. So the farmer is saying, okay, thanks very much for this square peg you're giving me, but how can I fit it into this series of round holes I'm working with? Exactly. So I, I guess this is a bit off topic, but um, I'm going to indulge myself nonetheless by asking you, is there really any empirical basis for the idea of four seasons, even in, let's say, Northwest Europe? Does this idea of a season really have a like a have a correlate in the natural world. I mean, seasons are continuous, right? The change of climate year by year doesn't naturally fall into four distinct blocks. No, it's is yeah. It, is it just a historical quirk that we decided there's four, or or what? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few parts. There's, of course, there are seasons. I mean, there are the, the Earth has an axis, and sometimes the northern hemisphere gets more light or, or more dark. So you know, it's not as though it's complete social construction. So we ought not kind of say that. And of course, there are different patterns of insulation from the sun and also therefore which affects kind of weather patterns so there's periods when we have more wet and more dry and so on like that and of course plants react to that phenologically so they flower and bud at certain times but the idea of four seasons is I think more or less based on this, the summer equinox, the winter equinox, the, you know, so there's kind of four markers of different kind of insulation of, you know, when the sun hits us and how much. But of course, what that actually means in the places we live is very cultural. So the way we kind of make sense of seasons, at least in my project, I mean, I'm a social scientist, so, you know, natural scientists would see that differently, but I'm really, and, and, and anthropologists have talked about this for over a hundred years, seasons are cultural frameworks that we, as you say, 
nature doesn't have inherently four seasons. We have said, okay, here's a pattern of rhythms, lots of sunshine, everything's flowering, lots of fruit. Uh, we go on holiday, uh, we've finished harvesting, da, da, da. let's call that summer. So we packet these rhythms and we kind of categorize them into what we call natural categories, but the, the, the cultural, the way that we've framed them and that we live by them. So these categories are not only natural or social, they're really this kind of both. And we've culturally defined them and therefore we can culturally change them. So it can be, for example, and this then is on topic because I've, I've been saying that science needs to be kind of integrated, in my opinion, it needs to take into account the fact that people already have heads full of knowledge and understandings and, and ideas of how the world works that the science has to be integrated into. But it, it does, of course, happen that certain science kind of supersedes or overrides all of the stuff that was there before. And typically, I think of weather forecasts, which have become increasingly skillful. The topography of Nordbergen makes it a little bit trickier. <laughs> yeah. But but this, this science becomes really, um, has, it, we've come to rely on it so much that now, you know, I'll walk out in the rain because my app is telling me that it's sunny now, you know, and I'll be walking in the rain, getting wet and thinking, this is strange. The app's telling me that uh, it's sun, you know, rather than trusting my own eyes and saying at this exact moment, it's raining. So weather forecasts have kind of, kind of done away with a lot of our, what we had before where we used to kind of read the sky and okay, yeah, that looks like rain, looks like a dark cloud to the North or something like that. So I, I science can act to supersede those other understandings, I think. Yeah, well, okay. This is something I was going to ask earlier, but then we, we moved on and now I get maybe a second bite at the cherry. So perhaps I don't, or perhaps at least I didn't quite understand the perspective from which you want to integrate different ways of knowing alongside scientific knowledge. So what you've been saying over the last few minutes makes a lot of sense to me. You've been saying, okay, science is useful. It provides this very particular, very kind of robust set of knowledge that we wouldn't otherwise get. And it's it's reliable in particular ways because of its methods and so on. And yet we have to realize that the people who need to use that knowledge might not engage with it exactly on its own terms. So in making scientific knowledge useful to them, we have to take into account not only their needs, but also their perspectives and their own kinds of knowledge, which might come from other sources and so on. Okay, that's all good. It makes perfect sense to me now. Um, incidentally, I don't think I fully understood it before we had this conversation. I was a bit more skeptical. So, so... Thank you. That's great. However, previously, and you can tell me if this is wrong, I had thought there was another dimension to what you were saying, which is that scientific knowledge is not the only ultimately valid knowledge. Science has to sit alongside other ways of knowing as inputs into decisions, and, and they're kind of on a par, or at least they can be. We shouldn't be like imperialist about science and assume it can be used to judge all other knowledge claims. And my worry with that kind of argument is, or has always been, well, okay, that's all very well, but we do need a way to distinguish useful knowledge <laughs> categories from useless ones. I, I mean, we need to be able to say why, for instance, uh, evidence-based medicine is reliable and aura healing with crystals is, is not. We need to find ways to exclude the, the bullshit. It's a technical term, I believe. And if scientific evaluation is not the method by which those other knowledge claims are evaluated, then well, well, what is? Because we need something to separate the good stuff from the rubbish. So then you come along and say, aha, 
here's an example of these mango buds in, in Bangladesh, it was, I think, where you gathered this local knowledge and then you applied the scientific method to it to see whether it was reliable or not. You did an experiment, right? I mean, a citizen science project, sure, with local people, but nonetheless, an experiment which was able to evaluate the knowledge claims of the proverb. And in this case, you found that actually, I mean, taking into account limitations to the study and so on, the proverb seemed not to hold water. You use science to, to measure and rule out another source of knowledge or to be a bit less uh, confrontational. You could say in a sense, you kind of rolled that other knowledge into science. Yeah, science came along and encountered some non-scientific claims and it tested them and then it it either integrated them or, or threw them out. But either way, the body of scientific knowledge grew a little bit as a result. Fine, but this is not an argument for treating other forms of knowledge as equal and on a par with science. Uh, it seems to me at best it's just an argument for scientists to be a bit more open-minded about where they get their ideas of what to test. Uh, you're absolutely right, Toby. So, so that's a... That's very astutely recognised. I mean, but there are very different ways in which we can kind of assess the quality of the knowledges that we're going to draw on for a, for a particular decision make. So there are other ways. It's not just using the scientific method. No, no, no. And and I would say that uh, there's a few things here. So uh, first of all, what we did in Bangladesh, it was the people in the villages that where we were working that identified what things they were interested in finding out more about. So it wasn't that we heard them talk about the mango buds and said, oh, wait a minute, we need to check this. This was them themselves that said, well, we've often had this proverb, I'd like to see if that holds. And then we together designed with them uh, a scientific experiment. So it was, a, we, we as scientists, and we had natural scientists involved as well, we came up with an experiment, we demarcated an area, we had kind of, a particular format to fill out and a photo of what constitutes many buds, medium or low, or, you know, and when then we checked the correlation between that and, and the amount of rainfall. So this was a scientific experiment. Um, but typically the fact that it came from the village and they had a role in testing this on the one hand means to me, it didn't feel like a kind of a scientific debunked exercise. That's not the work I, I want to be involved in. Then I talk about the gardens and here again, it's not for me to come along and say, ho, 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 you silly gardeners, you think that uh, this is the time when you do your chainsawing, but actually I've been sitting here for a whole year and I see that that's actually not what happens. And, you know, um, which is the reason behind having these reflexive conversations. So it's it's a careful, reflexive, even therapeutic, uh, um, they've sometimes referred to me when they introduced me to people who were there, oh, this is uh, Scott. He comes on Fridays. He's our he's our seasonal therapist, and <laughs> and it's the yeah. and so it's they themselves that come to these realizations with me. I mean, we we together learning it. So oh, you know, we used to do it like this, but doing that seasonal practice at that time doesn't really hold anymore because the technology's moved on, or the last few years have been much drier during the summer than they than they have been in the past, and now we need to water more, or you know, so there's changes in climate, or yeah whatever it might be. So there's another kind of way in which we can do it. And the third way I would say that I've kind of focused on is through something, and again, I'm going to refer back to post-normal science, which is an approach I've been working a lot with, which is talking about extended peer communities. There again, we get a bunch of people sitting around a table from different knowledge systems. And it's not as though we then kind of, you know, one person at the table 
brings up a particular, you know, a, a scientific metric, a, a kind of a, a scientific ruler, and then gets out and measures everyone's claims using that same scientific ruler and saying, okay, well, this one seems to be a very strong claim because it very closely approaches the scientific standard of rigor or, or that. Uh, rather, you, you have these people around the table and they start discussing the issue at hand, the uncertainties, what kind of uh, different understandings or, or knowledge claims could be useful for help, helping us to kind of make a decision uh, as fast as we need to based on the uncertainties and you know, high stakes and all these kind of things, taking into account all these different concerns. And I studied a really nice case in New Zealand over 10 years ago where they were putting in a wastewater treatment plant in, in a place called Gisborne on the east coast of New Zealand. And they had wastewater engineers, they had ecologists, they had uh, local Māori and locals who, who had local knowledge of, of the area. So we had indigenous knowledge, local knowledges, scientific knowledges, professional engineering knowledges, all sat around the table. And they sat around the table for a good amount of time. I mean, I think they met weekly for over a year. But what actually happened at the end of that was that you had people starting to talk from other knowledge perspectives. So you'd have uh, the, the wastewater engineer saying, well, one thing we could do here would be to discharge this kind of waste here and this way to this area. But uh, I can see how this would contravene a lot of the Maori worldviews and, and uh, you know, ideas of separating uh, human waste from, you know, water sources and things like this. So that probably won't work in, in this case. And then you would have the, the local uh, Maori tribe, the local iwi, who would say, Yes, thank you. That's really great. And, and that, that is true in a sense. But, you know, we have to be pragmatic here as well. And the engineering, one engineering option could be that if we do, you know, so just by sitting around and mulling over these options for over a year, they were starting to be able to kind of understand the issue from other knowledge perspectives than their own. People could play with these different measures of quality that were not purely scientific, were not purely relative to the engineering or the science or Māori ways of knowing, Indigenous ways of knowing, but could kind of work across them and apply them in different ways. So there's an example, for instance, where uh, Māori Indigenous knowledge was not just superseded into a scientific model, far from it, it was kind of held alongside these other ways of knowing and kind of debated alongside these other ways of knowing. Yeah, that's great. So, so it's kind of a pragmatic thing. It's an approach. So you don't approach in a kind of arrogant way with your scientist hat on saying, hello, I'm here to tell you this is wrong and here's my data to prove it. You, you kind of approach it with some humility and respect and common sense and then you do your skillful therapy, right? Because you get results that way. You see people changing attitudes and broadening horizons and maybe you broaden yours as well. That's all great. But then that's a question of approach. It's about adopting methods that get results and by the way, are also a bit less you know, arrogant and annoying. It's not a question of what's the best way to get to the truth. Okay, as soon as I said the word truth, I could hear a whole Pandora's box creaking open in the background. But you know what I mean? Openness and humility are pragmatic approaches. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's a funny one. Um, there are absolutely situations in which we can get to the scientific truth of a matter. I mean, I think we're foolish if we start to say that, you know, science is all constructed and there's no truth and, and we can't, you know, there's no objective truth in the world or anything. At least, I'm not going to say we're foolish, but I think that's a dangerous, that's a slippery slope when everything becomes relativized because there is absolutely ways in which we can get at scientific truth. 
on certain matters. Uh, we can create experiments in highly controlled environments, and we can we can understand certain phenomena in that way. And and yes, okay. But once we start to come to societal challenges like climate change, like COVID, like loss of pollinators, like uh, managing chemicals and, and what they do in our environment, and how they affect us, these are such enormous, complex and uncertain issues that I think we ought to step back from talking about what's the scientific truth of the matter. I mean, there's a really nice article from quite a long time ago by Dan Sarowitz. This comes back a little bit to our kind of scientific, the fragmentation of scientific disciplines and, and what science is. For a lot of these issues, they're so large and complex that we can approach them from so many different scientific perspectives that we will end up with inherently contradictory, you know, we'll have three or four scientists sat around a room who will come up with three or four very contradictory assessments of what's going on. And they're not lying. They're not, well, I mean, there is a whole literature around, you know, buying science and merchants of doubt and all of that kind of thing. But if we park all that for the moment and just say that scientists can, from their own disciplinary perspective and using the particular tools at their disposal, study a complex phenomena and come up with inconsistent uh, assessments, most people would accept this for something that is so complex as climate change or so on. And so, you know, this is what Dan, Dan Sarowitz was writing about, why how science makes environmental controversies worse. It's obviously a provocative title, but I think this is why we have to step back from talking about truth with a capital T when we talked about these some of these issues and why it can be worthwhile saying, okay, in the absence of any science in this situation, and but in, in the urgency of needing to make a decision, then should we should we make a decision based on something else? And or should we limit ourselves so much to saying if it's not scientific, then it's not worth acting on? Uh, then we we I think we have a lot of missed opportunities. I mean, I was doing a, a pilot study in a very arid place in India, and I asked them, um, okay, so do you use kind of traditional knowledge, local knowledge of proverbs and so on for for planting things? Uh, or do you have proverbs? And so, yes, we have these proverbs. And, you know, if it rains in this kati or this two-week period, then uh, it will flood. Or if, if it rains in this period, then you should sow your seeds and these kind of things. Do they hold still? No, no, they said, no, they don't at all. The climate's changed completely. Everything's changed. No, it never seems to rain when it's supposed to rain. Oh, dear, I said, well, I guess, do you use science then? You know, scientific weather forecast, these kind of things. No, no, we can't use that because the closest measuring station was something like 200 meters to the 200 kilometers, I should say, to the north or 150 to the southwest or something like this. So the science didn't hold either. So they were really in this kind of bind. And it was quite a sad situation because I said, well, what do you use? Well, we still use the proverbs, even knowing that they don't really hold anymore, but just we have to make a decision based on something. We can't just flip a coin and say, should we sow our seeds today? Or they'll have different rationales like, okay, it rained today. I'll run out and sow my seeds. Uh, and as long as it rains again within the next week, they might take hold and grow. Something might grow. So when we don't have the science, we might have to make decisions based on other things. Uh, that, that's kind of going right back to my story when I was a planner way back when in local government, that was a frustration I had that very often we needed to make decisions on, on a seawall or a piece of coastal infrastructure. We'd have a few small consultant reports collected on some quite short uh, series of data. And then you'd have a local there who'd taken photographs of the beach for 30 years since they'd lived there. And 
often it was quite hard to admit that as evidence in a decision-making process because this was seen as something anecdotal or, or you know, uh, it, it wasn't collected with rigor. It was just when he thought to pull out his camera and take a photo and, okay, sure. But when we have such sparse scientific knowledge, wouldn't it also make sense that say, okay, let's bring these photographs onto the table. Let's see how this 30 years worth of photographs might also play a role in helping us uh, make decisions here. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, you can do that understanding the constraints and limitations of what you have without feeling the urge to throw it all in the bin. I mean, I think this idea of not acting at all until you have the final word from science, even in extreme urgency, is obviously silly. And we saw that in in COVID, right? I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty early on when we had very little evidence about how this new virus was transmitted. And there was kind of paralysis. People were saying things like, oh, we don't want to advise wearing masks because we don't have evidence yet that they work and people might wear them wrong. I mean, if you haven't got science, then okay, but you've still got common sense. It seems screamingly obvious with hindsight, at least, that you know when you have to do something, you have to do something. Exactly. No, I think that was a really revealing example. Uh, and of course, there was a lot of nonsense, you know, people going blind in Iran from drinking uh, methanol and, and things which they thought would kind of cure it or... or that a good swim in the cold ocean would kind of cure you from COVID and things like this. And, you know, some of these things seemed a little bit kind of fanciful and not well thought through. But, you know, we have lived with, as you say, viruses for centuries, you know, for generations and generations. And so certain measures that certain you know, people took by isolating or by covering themselves, you know, mouths and things, as you say, people could also fall back on certain forms of common sense or common sense is a tricky one isn't it but or inherited understandings if we say kind of you know traditional knowledges of how we how we do things or yeah yeah sure yeah absolutely and i guess the person who who drinks the ethanol you know you have to take the rough with the smooth a bit when you understand that you're not using solid scientific evidence you're falling back on other stuff sure some of the other stuff is going to turn out to be unhelpful or wrong there'll be some misfires yeah but again you have to decide based on something yeah, exactly. And I, I did find it a little bit frustrating sometimes, and I, I'm not sure if, how popular this sentiment would be, but in the media, there were a lot of scientists who were kind of being very dismissive of people taking certain tried and true old remedies or, you know, lemon drinks or these kind of things and say, you silly people, it's just, you know, this is a new virus, this is not a common cold and, you know. And yet at the same time, they were making these statements. I mean, we, we now know a lot more about COVID and that virus, but this was quite early on. You know, people were kind of, I'm not sure that the, the people that were so being so dismissive of this local understands or people using kind of tried and true old methods, I'm not sure that they had a, uh, <laughs> a scientific basis on which to make some of those claims, you know, because the, the virus was so new. We didn't know, the science didn't know about it. So in what position were they to kind of, throw out all you know to to tell these people to stop drinking lemon drinks that's silly you know i mean yeah indeed i mean a not sure what evidence they had and b what was their better idea just do nothing for a while and wait for the vaccine yeah okay well this has been a really invigorating conversation and i am not at all looking forward to coming up with a title for the episode because we've somewhat wandered all over the map and i mean that in the best possible way <laughs> my first question about supply and demand with hindsight looks a little uh, off base no and, and i do start a lot from supply and demand but that's more of a point of departure for saying yeah but here's the dichotomy 
but actually let's see how we can convene these groups in the middle somewhere and, and actually have this more as a kind of a, a conversation and a challenging each other's perspectives and blah, 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 rather than a, how can we create this supply chain between supply and demand or, or something like that. So when you were asking about supply and demand, it's always been for me, not a, a model that I've gone really, really deep into and that I know, you know, that I've read a hundred thousand things on this idea of supply, because to me, that's less what I'm interested in and more about how we can yeah, configure something in the middle. Yeah, well, that's great. And I think we ended up with something really valuable for which I'm very grateful, Dr. Scott Bramer. You have been a great conversation partner. Thank you very much, Toby. It's been a really lovely conversation. Always happy to talk about these kind of things. <laughs> the Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.